Pacific Conversations from the Development Policy Centre with Tess Newton-Kane. My name is Tess Newton-Kane. I'm a visiting fellow with the Development Policy Centre. And today here in Brisbane, I'm very happy to have the chance to chat with Sean Dorney. Sean, welcome to Pacific Conversations. Thank you very much, Tess. So usually I ask people to give a bit of an intro to themselves and their background, but as it's you, I've decided I'm just going to tell the listeners that Google is their friend, and they, if they don't know who you are, they can look you up. So we'll uh, move straight on. And the other thing I'm going to do, which may put some of them off, is that I'm going to remind you that you and I agreed the other day that we'd use this chat to talk about your work in the Pacific other than Papua New Guinea. Yep. So there's plenty of scope for talking about Papua New Guinea, but we're going to save that for another time. Fine. So let's start by looking back at all of the stories that you've covered in the region, other than PNG. Which do you think the ones that have had the most impact on you, and why would that be? Well, it's a pretty difficult question. Good, I like difficult questions. (laughs) To answer. Uh, Look, one of the things about the Pacific is all the countries are so very, very different. Uh, The Polynesian countries are different from the Melanesian countries and they're both different to the the Micronesian countries. And I've been fortunate enough to have been to almost every one of them. And what I find fascinating is that no matter where you go, every country has its own sort of individual issues and, and problems. So that's what I'd start with is that there's a huge variety of of interesting things going on yeah. in all these different countries. And even within one country, there can be different things going on in different parts of that country. Especially in Melanesia, where the language groups are so diverse. And, yeah. and, and um, But that's true too in, in, in Polynesia. Some parts of, say, Samoa are quite different from, from other parts. So... It's, it's very difficult to make huge generalisations, I think, about the Pacific. But um, one of the big advantages I think I had as a journalist spending so much time in the Pacific is that I actually like Pacific Islanders. Yes. I mean, I ended up marrying one from, from Manus Island in PNG, but I genuinely have, have built up, I think, real friendships yeah. throughout the region um, which has been exceptionally sort of useful. One of the other things that, that I've found too, and I think that any journalist from outside who is coming into the Pacific, who is trying to do their job and chase up stories, you rely, if you're going to get it right, enormously on the local journalists. Yeah. On the journalists in those countries. I had excellent relationships, I believe, with journalists throughout the Pacific. And one of the first things I did wherever I went when I was covering a story, as long as it wasn't sort of something that that demanded immediate sort of coverage, was to go and chat with the local newspaper and talk to those people. So that, I think, is really a really important point. So I'm just going to, like, pause there. Because, you know, I've lived and worked in the Pacific for 20 years more, and I think that is possibly... The biggest, if you were going to give anybody a top tip, it's just just slow down and listen and chat and do that. Do that. Um, I don't know what you call it, that ground preparing or well, just do that relationship enhancing. If you can do it before you get there, good. But certainly once you arrive, that's when you... Well, one of the really positive 
things that helped me so, so much was going to the annual Pacific Island News Association conferences where you actually met these journalists and you, you built up some relationships with them, even if you hadn't been to their country. And then when you did go to their country, yeah. they were always so delighted to see you, which is That's sort right. of very pleasing so It's as almost well. like you've sort of started making friends before the plane even touches down. Yeah. And, and look, I sort of, it was almost a, a rule of mine that um, when I was in any of these countries, I would link up with the local media because they know so much more. Yeah. than you could ever possibly know. Yeah. You may occasionally sort of get a little bit of a scoop by politicians being more prepared to speak to you than they are to the local journalists. But, but to get the leads and to get the ideas of, of the things you need to pursue, I, I've just found it totally and invaluable. Also, and also I think just to get a better sense of the context because they can tell you, oh, yes, you know, I was at school with that person or my uncle played sport with them or were in the same church and they, and that just brings so much more depth. So even if that doesn't actually get into your story, do you find that that helps you decide what is going into the story? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Um, the question was looking back at these stories, you know, which are the ones that, that made an impact? Well, you know, I suppose one of the ones that really made impact on me is going to Fiji and trying to cover the coups in Fiji. I mean, at one stage when Bainimarama was ruled to be illegal by the courts there, I actually got deported after <laughs> reporting that. So, I mean, that has a bit of an impact. Yes, it does. <laughs> on you if you get thrown out um, of a country. But I... Um, I mean, the, the, the whole atmosphere in Fiji, I have found, um, prior to the coups, it so was so much coups, different. So when you say the coups, give us a, just give us a date. Well, what, what period are you talking about there? Well, I've been in and out of... as we know, there have been several. Absolutely. Look, I've been in and out of Fiji um, since the, the mid-70s, so... Um, so definitely the eighty-seven. Yeah, the eighty-seven coup was. I mean, that was quite different to the, to the to the post ones to, yeah, to the yeah. Bainimarama coups. Um, but yeah, look, I, I so that in terms of impact, there's no doubt the the the, the Fiji coups and and trying to cover those were um, significant. The tensions in the Solomons. I was in and out of the Solomons again and again and again, covering that conflict between the Guadalcanal and the and the, and the Malaitans, so many of whom had had migrated to to uh, to Guadalcanal. So that uh, you know, I, I really spent a lot of time in um, Honiara. Of course, at times it was difficult to get out of Honiara. We actually got captured at one stage. Um, when we ventured, you know, across the line. But uh, uh, Rambuka, who was there as a peace negotiator at that time, this is well after he was, uh, uh, uh. you know, the, the, his coup, but he had become sort of a figure in the Pacific. And well, I think it was... gamekeeper. Well, the Commonwealth. <laughs> the Commonwealth had approached him to be a, a sort of peace negotiator in the tensions on... on uh, in the Solomons, and um, Michael Field uh, and I, um, we had ventured out into sort of um, the Isatambu 
sort of territory and we were taken and looked as though we were going to be held hostage. But Rambuka came along and um, just happened to, to come by and we'd been staying in the same hotel and so we'd been having breakfast with Rambuka and dinner with Rambuka every day. And so he managed to convince them to, to uh, let us go and he even convinced them to give them back our tape recorders. So he came back to the hotel after we got back there and, and delivered our tape recorders <laughs> and everything back to us. So, look, the Solomons, you know, I found to be, you know, a real, had a real impact yeah. on me. Um, one of the stories, though, that I spent a lot of time doing in the Pacific, in lots of different countries, was the tuna fishery. Because right. tuna is a resource that the Pacific actually own. And there's been a lot of effort put into trying to get as much of the benefits out of the tuna fishery as possible. And, and the Central and Western Pacific Fisheries Agency, which is based up in Micronesia, and the Forum Fisheries Agency in... in and in, the PNA Secretary. Yep, at the PNA have done extraordinary work. So, I mean, that's one of the stories that I have... You know, spent quite a bit of time in quite a few different countries covering. You see, that, I think that's really interesting because going back to what you said earlier about there are very few generalisations, which I agree with you entirely about. Tuna, and Matt Dawn and I have talked about this a, a, a lot, tuna is one of the few things that regionalism really does work for and it's largely because the tuna don't stay still. That's, they move from this country's jurisdiction to that country's jurisdiction. So you have to work together because the resource is moving. You're perfectly right. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't take any credit because that, that's Matt's thinking that I've borrowed. <laughs> but no, that I, I mean, it is true. And it, I mean, I was at the very, very first meeting where... The Forum Fisheries Agent, or the PNA, parties to the Nauru Agreement. They met in, in Nauru, of course, parties to the Nauru Agreement. Yeah. And I was there for that. And it was such a, almost a groundbreaking yes. um, getting together of these different Pacific countries who all realised that they had to get their hands together you know, and grasp this issue. And significantly said, we don't want any donors involved, we're going to do this ourselves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was interesting because I was allowed into a lot of those meetings, but the Australian foreign affairs officials who were desperately trying to find out what was going on were um, sort of on the outer. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was really interesting. And it's had such significant repercussions because it's affected the negotiations around trade with the EU, which in turn affected what happened with PESA Plus. So it's it's not this story isn't going away. This is not at all. This is a, a long standing and continuing story. Yeah. And and so that's you know that 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 whole tuna issue is one that I spent quite a bit of time yeah. you know researching and talking to people about it's, it's not straightforward it's very technical. no no it is it's very technical and it's you know it's also and very political very political and it's really interesting to go to to those offices in in Honiara and look at the way they keep track yeah of of all of these um 
fishing boats that, mm. are, that mm. are going around the region. So, no, I, you know, that, I think, of economic stories in the Pacific, the one thing that, that as you said, everyone seems to have uh, a um, stake in is, is the whole tuna yeah. fishery. No, fascinating. Okay, uh, let's move on to my next question. Yep. We can come back to sure. that one, shall we? So I guess it follows on, and we, you, we've sort of started to talk about it maybe, but you might want to explore it in a different way. What do you think are the most significant changes you've seen in the Pacific during your career, both positive and negative? And what do you think they mean for the countries of our region, like, like not just now, but also going forward into the future? Well, on the positives... Um, because I've been cover, <laughs> covering these countries um, since before some of them got their independence. Exactly, so, so you've seen so some significant shifts. Confidence, I think, is one of the interesting things. The, the, the greater confidence um, that Pacific Islanders have, have developed in themselves and, and in their negotiations um, with the outside world, that's one thing that I would put down as a positive, um, the going going back to the fisheries issue, that's very, 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 very obvious. What um, about more recently in relation to climate change diplomacy? Well, there's certainly been a uh, a cohesive effort in the Pacific, and and they've actually made their voices heard at those international fora. Um, so that is one issue on which I think there is sort of unanimity in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And if you go to some of the Coral Atoll Islands, you actually get the, <laughs> the almost feeling of impending doom that, that uh, some of those very low-lying coral um, atolls um, experience. So I think that is, you know, it's definitely been an issue that, that there's very little opposition to mm, mm. in the Pacific. I mean, people generally um, believe that this is a matter, and even Papua New Guinea, which probably is less affected by that sort of issue of submersion <laughs> than any of the others. Uh, Papua but it's New affected been, by other things, like those droughts and things like that that we've seen. Yeah, that's well, that's, that's true as well. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one of the, the, um, the issues. Um, Negatives, I can't avoid going back to the effect of the Fiji coups. I think that's been an overall negative in the Pacific. And, and so tell me a bit more about that. Why, yeah. why is that negative for countries other than Fiji? Obviously, well, Fiji, think, Fiji know, for so long was such a leader mm -hmm. in the Pacific. And, and now... Um, you know, you've got, you've got a leader in Fiji who, who came to power initially through, you know, the barrel of the gun, basically. Um, and I don't think it's a good thing for the Pacific for that to be because despite Papua New Guinea being the most populous country, for so, so long Fiji has been almost the de facto sort of principal mm. country. Every now and region. again, Papua New Guinea tries to sort of 
assert itself and say that it, uh, it sort of talk in terms of wanting to take on a bigger leadership role in the region. O'Neill did that fairly yeah. early on yeah. in 2012 and a couple of years after that. Yes, but the other thing is that Papua New Guinea actually sees itself also as being part of Asia. I mean, it's, right. it's, hard, it's hard for a lot of other Pacific Islanders, I think, to realise that. But there is that sort of belief in Papua New Guinea that it's... And, and there's a bit of arrogance to it as well. There's that sometimes a belief in Papua New Guinea that, you know, we're so much bigger, you know, we, we should be in a bigger league than yeah. these, you know, small island countries. And I think that sometimes puts some of the other Pacific Island countries off when Papua New Guinea tries to take a leading role. You don't feel that Pacific Island countries feel that way about Fiji? When oh. Fiji tries to yep. assert oh, no, that no, they're they, the natural leaders? I think so. I think that's true as well. Um, and I think especially since, um, you know, Bainimarama has been in charge, I don't think that there is that same... Um, admiration, I think, that there was for Fiji because Fiji was, you know, one of the first to become independent mm. and sort of led the the way, I suppose. I mean, Samoa would object to that. But... I'm sure they would. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in a way, I suppose, you know, that the, the events in Fiji have, have given um, Samoa a little more um, sway in in the um, negotiations in the Pacific. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Although, they, yeah, I think that's right. Certainly there was that ongoing tension between um, Samoa and Fiji. But essentially, I mean, you know, this is going off on a tangent slightly, but when we had that push a few years ago where people were saying, oh, you know, Australia and New Zealand should leave the forum because they dominate and they 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 bully people and all of that sort of thing, I did remember saying to people, yeah, if that happened, all we would do is sit around and moan about Fiji and PNG. Like, we would just find someone yep. else to moan about. It's yeah. not like we're no. going to stop moaning just that's... because Australia and New Zealand have gone home. No, I, I think... So th 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 and I think that's another thing that people don't always fully appreciate from outside yep. the region is that there's there's as much intra-tension, there's as much tension and um, jockeying between countries in the Pacific, Pacific Island countries, as there is between the Pacific and Australia oh, and New Zealand. Yeah, and, and that's why the whole tuna issue is is, yes. is almost the exception to the rule. Uh -uh. Yeah. The, the other thing that I would like to say, you're talking about negatives. One of the one of the concerns I think I have is to <laughs> I think I have. No, one of the concerns I have is population growth. Right. I think um, the almost exponential growth of, of some of these Pacific Island countries is going to be a real, real issue. Mm. Um, I mean, because again, that doesn't affect all of them. So it, Cook Islands true, actually has true. negative population. Well, the other thing too, in, and I was going to get onto that because the uh, the Micronesian countries or the ones that were former trust territories of the US, of the United States, have that release valve yeah. where they're allowed to migrate yeah. to, um, and lots of them have mm. migrated to, you know, the... the um, to the mainland. The, yeah, the to the West yeah. Coast, to the West Coast of America. So those 
um, the Marshall Islands and Palau and, and the Federated States of Micronesia, there's a bit of a release valve right. for those countries. But um, so we're I mean, really Samoa, talking about Melanesia. We're talking about Melanesia because you know Samoa and Tonga um, have a bit of a migration. Uh, arrangement mm. with New Zealand where certain numbers can go and then once they're there, their relatives can can follow. But, yes, um, Melanesia is is uh, a place where I think population issues are, are going to be increasingly difficult as the years go on. Okay. Well, that, I think that, that'll be an interesting one to watch because, the, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a position to say... That that whether that's right or wrong, I, obviously we recognise that that is where the population growth is, but it's also where the economic growth is. So the Melanesian economies are the ones that are growing more than the ones in other parts of the region. So, but as we know, the population is growing at a faster rate than the economies are at the moment. Yeah, and and um, I know we don't want to talk about Papua New Guinea, but but the population growth in Port Moresby, I think, is a real worry, and and probably. In some of the other capitals, yeah, Vila and around Honiara. the Pacific, Vila yeah. and Honiara, yeah. um, and the whole issue of squatter settlers and, and mm-hmm. things like that are, you know, very very difficult issues for these countries to, huge, to face. Huge, huge policy challenges on on all sorts of fronts. That whole and and as, and as you say, it's the growth in the capitals, the, the birth rate, but then also the inward migration from elsewhere in the country. So. It present, presents a huge number of challenges. I think it can present opportunities, but it certainly presents, yep. presents a huge sure. number of challenges. Excellent. So let's let's move more from the Pacific generally to your particular, uh, your your um, career and your trade and your profession. So looking at the media landscape in the Pacific Islands region, what do you think are the most significant opportunities and risks for journalism at the moment and maybe over the next few years? Look, I don't want to sound as though I am absolutely on top of current day issues in, in a lot of these Pacific countries because I haven't actually been on the beat now for, for several years. But, look, one of, the, um, one of the most negative issues for the media in the Pacific is intimidation. Intimidation by you know, governments, intimidation by people in positions of authority, sometimes intimidation by um, not only politicians but, but people in the police forces and, and others. So um, there are people in the Pacific who don't like journalists inquiring into anything. So that's one of the, uh, the, the problems. I've, I've got an enormous faith in the quality of some of the journalists in the region. But it's things aren't, I think, getting a lot better mm-hmm. in a lot of places. I, I, I think that, that um, the restrictions and, and freedom of the media are, are issues that really need to be sort of fought for and, and there are groups of Pacific Islands journalists who are sort of fighting mm-hmm. that fight. But, um, look, one of the, the challenges facing the, the media is just the cost of everything. But as technology improves, 
And even so, I mean, one of the really interesting things, I think, is, is social media in the Pacific now. It's sort of, it's, it's growing and, and the more internet connections and the more access that, that people have, um, it's got its positives and negatives yeah, yeah. for the media because it sort of probably makes the media in some ways less influential but in other ways, it allows them uh, greater scope to to spread the message, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, this is something I guess I've thought about most closely in relation to Vanuatu, where I've seen it for the longest and close up. But I think you're right. It's that combination of, of the opportunity, but also balancing the risks. I sometimes think, looking at the media in the Pacific, that it literally is a perfect storm because not only are they having to deal with this global change in the whole business model about how people access news and where they get their information from. And but where they get the money from. And where they get the money from. But also, they've also got this other stuff that you've referred to around um, intimidation or not, not even, even without getting into intimidation, just not really a full acceptance of what the role of the media in a liberal democracy yep. is or should be. Yep. And this comes back to the whole Fiji thing, because I've certainly sat in countries other than Fiji and had people, had politicians say to me, well, you know, they've probably got it right in Fiji. That's what we should be doing here. Yeah, that that is... And when you hear that, that's a worry. Yeah, it is a worry, but you do hear it. Yeah. Oh, no, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> That, oh, yes, and then, the, you know, the banning Facebook thing and all of this sort of thing. You know, these these ideas do get thrown around with not necessarily gay abandon, but then it's not that they are these isolated conversations. These conversations are taking place in all of the countries in the region. So, you know, I think it is this sort of... They've got... They were, they were already fighting this rearguard action against intimidation and freedom and independence, and now they've got all this other stuff around no money from advertising and the impacts of social media. So it's, it's a lot for what we know, a small, already stretched, resource-wise yep. organisations to be taking yeah. on. I hate to use a term that um, uh, Trump would use, but fake news. <laughs> I mean, not in terms of the main media, but in terms of social media. There's one of my concerns is that there's quite a lot of stuff going out and, and being posted that is just absolutely untrue. But yeah, I, that's true, but surely, I mean, there's been gammon talk talk for, forever. <laughs> it's, it's just taking place in a different place. <laughs> it's, no, it's not the same as the, all the crap that gets talked in carver bars in Vila and around beetle nut stores in Honiara. Yep, yep, you're you right. Know, you're so, perfectly yeah. right again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but obviously once it's up there on social media, it does the fact that somebody's typed it and it's there for everyone to see, yeah. as opposed to just what you and I have been gossiping about by ourselves, does in you can create this sense that it's somehow bigger, more significant, more important than than yeah. just normal gammon talk talk on the street. Oh. Yeah. So Let's think about how the Pacific is covered by the media here in this country, where we are here in Australia. What do you think are the factors that contribute to the way in which the Pacific is covered by the Australian media? And how do you think these factors should be addressed to 
increase the amount of coverage and improve the quality? And I realise that that is something of a loaded slash leading question. Yeah, and it may be that you think we don't need any more coverage and what we've got is fabulous. But if we do need more and what we've got should be better, how might that come about? But start with the first bit. What are the factors that contribute to what we get from the Australian media about the Pacific? Cost and interest. Um, which, it is, come, which comes first? Interest comes first. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, no, I mean, one of my concerns is that there doesn't seem to have been, I'm going to make a qualification on this shortly, but there doesn't seem to have been a, a belief in any of the managements of the major news organisations in Australia that the Pacific is in any way important. Um, so the boss's attention to the region has just not been there. Um, and then the cost issue, of course, it does. it is quite expensive to travel. But if you cared, if you thought it was important, you, you would find the money. If there's money to you if would. there's money to camp outside a cave in Thailand for however long while twelve or thirteen kids are rescued, then there's money to go to Vanuatu and talk to people being Yes, there is, but Mumbai. I mean let me give you an example of, of coverage. Um, the Lombok earthquake yeah. just recently, massive coverage, absolutely massive coverage. Compare that to the coverage in Vanuatu. Yeah, exactly. You know, when the with the evacuations and the earthquake and the volcano and everything there, almost nothing yeah. in the Australian media. Um, I mean, it, yeah. Look, I I just I I just have a bit of a concern that that we don't have enough people in the media in Australia who have an interest or who have any idea about what's going on. One one of the things I often go on about is it doesn't seem to me to be in the in the in the even in the school curriculums anything to do with Australia's relationships with these countries that that are off. You know, there's so many of them so close to us. They're all in our region, but we don't seem to even realise that that they're there in 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 the in large part. So that's you know that's one of the um, the problems. On the other side, the one thing, and it's almost distressing for me to say this, all of a sudden we're getting this panicked interest because of China, because China is paying far more attention to the Pacific than Australia is. And that's really, really interesting. I'm not, you know, it's... <laughs> China has all of a sudden sparked the interest, for instance, of News Limited mm. in the Pacific. But they don't have anyone on the staff, apart from Rowan Kellick, who's based in Beijing, or was based in Beijing, but is now, you know, back here and only writing once a month for them. There's no one in the Australian or in the news media stable who seems to know the first thing about the region. And that's... It doesn't stop that is having what, a lot to say. Uh, no, and, and they get a, quite a bit of it wrong because they don't understand and, and don't have the connections and don't have the people who go out there. I mean, one of the other things that worrying to me is that... Um, and this could be changed if there's a reintroduction of, of international broadcasting, but the ABC 
is not paying as much attention as it used to. I mean, the ABC has a journalist here in Brisbane whose job it is to try and cover the Pacific, but he finds it exceptionally difficult to get the money to make the travel. And I find it really interesting that Stefan Ambrusta from SBS actually travels out more into the Pacific than anyone from the ABC. Um, I mean, when I was with the ABC and when we had Australia Network, the television service, going, I would spend seven days a month on average travelling around the Pacific. You know, we just don't do that mm. anymore. And, and um, so I hope that, that if there is this review of international broadcasting and is there sort of some extra money provided for Australia to re-enter that space, which is virtually abandoned, that then there'll be, you know, someone who can get out there and so, do those stories so around the region. How significant are, and you'll have to forgive me if I get the terminology wrong, but how significant are people like producers and editors, those ones that sit at that middle management level, how significant are they in this picture? And, and how... Well, they're, they're extremely significant, but they have no interest. They, you know... They... Is that because they don't see a career path in it? It's not going to get them a promotion or... Is it well, because their audiences aren't telling them what well, they want? Well, it's very interesting that you talk about career paths because um, it disturbed me enormously just recently after um, Eric Torchek um, left Papua New Guinea. Eric did a fantastic job there for the ABC, but he's now gone to the Middle East. I heard that the ABC had decided that Port Moresby should now be occupied by a journalist on a 12-month basis. Now, well, you can't, you can't get, get done to know. <laughs> you can't get to know a place like that or the rest of the Pacific no. in 12 months. And it's as though there's been a decision, if this is correct, that there's been a decision made in the ABC, but, look, it's not important. We'll try people out and then we'll send them to a proper place where they can be a foreign correspondent. And that is exceptionally distressing. Yes, thanks for that. <laughs> that is exceptionally distressing. <laughs> okay, so coming back to the bit of my question about what do we need to do to get more coverage and for the coverage we get to be more and better? You've talked about there needs to be the interest, there needs to be money. What else do we... What, what responsibility do audiences have, if any, in this space? Because I talk to Australian people all the time and when I say to them, oh, don't you think it's odd that you don't hear anything about the Pacific? They say, oh, yeah, you're right, that is odd. Why don't I know what's going on in oh, well. Papua New Guinea or Van? Why hasn't that been covered? So, so there does seem to be, you know, my extremely non-methodological, methodologically sound research indicates that there is an interest so why isn't this getting, why isn't this affecting the people that make the decisions about giving money to Liam or Stefan or whatever it is? Where is the missing link? What's missing in that? If I knew the answer to that, <laughs> Tess, <laughs> I would uh, hire myself out as a consultant. Um, yeah, look, I, I really, you know, it's... it's um, then again, I come back to China. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, there's been this interest 
in Canberra and therefore in the Canberra Press Gallery about the influence of China in the Pacific. One of the problems we have is that there's almost no one in Canberra in the Press Gallery who knows anything about the Pacific and mm. that's, that's a bit sort of annoying. Well, but, and there's an added problem in that that's all they want to talk about. Yes. So you can't get them to yeah. talk about anything unless it's got the and China except, bit. Except that. It's also, it, it may have the, the positive effect of making some of the bosses realise that this China story is going to be an important one. Therefore, we need people to get on the beat, get out there and find out what's going on. Yes. So that may be sort of a positive out of it. And, and I certainly, sincerely hope that you know, some of those executive news executives who make these decisions are looking at this issue and thinking, gee, you know, we don't know much about it. How has China picked up this ball that we seem to have dropped? You know, let's, let's go and find out a bit more yeah. about this. So that's, that's one of my hopes, yeah. is that that will happen. Yeah, I think that's a shared hope. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Um, I've, I've said before, and I can't remember whether you and I have discussed this before, that one of the reasons I think we're in the, that Australia finds itself in this situation is that there are no votes in the Pacific. So no one's going to, when we have the elections next year, no one's going to be asked questions at a hustings or a town hall meeting about, well, what do you think? Oh, yes, they will. You reckon? Yep. They'll ask questions about Nauru and Manus. <laughs> yeah. Because of the asylum seeker issue. And it's... It, is that enough? No, it's not enough. And, and it skews the whole... Does it skew the whole thing? ...issue. I mean, that's one of, you know, we were talking about positives and negatives. One of the negatives, I would say, of the last few years um, in the Pacific has been this whole asylum seeker issue that, that you know, the Pacific is seen as a, as a holding ground to sort of solve Australia's boat people problem. Um, now, I don't want to get in depth on this whole asylum seeker issue because I actually I have views that, you know, some of those asylum seekers are, are not the sort of people we need in Australia anyway because of the way they have treated the people in Papua New Guinea and, and Nauru, that some of the um, attitudes of, of some of these people um, I don't think are, are the sorts of things we, we really want in Australia. But in terms of Australia's relationship with places like Nauru and, and Papua New Guinea, there are some financial benefits to it, but there's a lot of sourness that's come as a result of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too big an issue for us to explore in great detail here, but I definitely agree with you that the impact that it has on the relationships and also the impact that it has on those countries, you know, whatever, whatever happens to those um, refugee processing centres in the next however many years, the impacts of that economically and socially are going to be left on Nauru and Manus for years and years to come. And after all, everything else is gone and the money's done, well, all of that's all done and dusted, there are going to be long-lasting effects. And I think that that is possibly one of the most, um, one of the most despicable aspects of that whole thing, whatever you feel about the other issues. Just the fact that, essentially, Australia prosecuted or is prosecuting domestic policy 
in foreign countries with apparently very little regard for what that's going to mean for the future of those countries is something that I find quite concerning. One of the things that concerned me right at the beginning is that um, Peter O'Neill would agree that Papua New Guinea's reputation was so bad yeah, yeah. that it was going to solve this issue yeah. for Australia. Yeah. I mean, it's turning out that it's, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the boats have stopped and so that's been sort of uh, a win for the Australian policy. But for Peter O'Neill to agree that Papua New Guinea would provide a solution because it had such a terrible reputation... Yeah. And to basically allow his country to be portrayed in those terms. Yep. Is, you know, I mean, that's to, that, that I found quite chilling at the time. Yep. Yeah. Okay, let's see if we can finish on a slightly more upbeat note. So we've, we've sort of come at this um, already, but I want you to have a chance to think about it in maybe bigger, more ambitious terms. So... If we agree that the Pacific is or should be more important in Australia and to Australians, what do you think we can or should do to bring that about? And I don't know what I mean by we in that sense. What should be done in order to bring that about? We should teach our kids at school where we are in the, in the world, that this is our region. We're surrounded or not surrounded. We've got heaps and heaps of countries just to our north and, and off to the east that are um, vibrant and interesting and crucial, basically, to Australia's future. I mean, China thinks they're important. <laughs> I think it's time that we actually had in the Australian sort of schools curriculum, some, some, some elements that sort of teach um, our kids that, that we actually have um, a responsibility, I think, to where we live in the world and to the prosperity and good health of these Pacific Island countries, which, you know, have looked to Australia in the past for, for help and assistance. I think New Zealand plays far more attention to the Pacific generally than, than Australia does. But I think that, you know, this is, this, is, this is our part of the world. This is where we live. This is where, you know, we have and can have such a greater impact. Okay. Sean, thank you very much. Thank you, Tess. Thank <laughs> you.